Hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow travelers along the way. Welcome to another episode of the Avalon Mentors Podcast. Good morning, Dr. Thompson. How are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing very well myself. Another lovely morning here in uh, paradise, northern paradise. Yeah, northern paradise. I see your background is different today. Does that mean that you have translocated yes. yourself? I have translocated myself to Warsaw, Warsaw, Poland here. Oh. And, uh, unexpected, unexpectedly in Warsaw. Ah, uh, today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Yeah, it sounds like a prog rock album. Unexpectedly, <laughs> 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 Warsaw. Yes, yes, the experience I think lends itself to that. that yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, we're here this morning, hopefully, to tackle chapter thirteen. It's a very, you know, it's interesting. This book is a wonderful novel, but you get to that dragon, you think, well, there's the end, and you still have five more chapters to go. You know. Tolkien was an interesting cat that he didn't put the dragon at the, at the main point. But right. we have a lot to say, I think, about the dragon itself. And then we can look through the, the chapter, too, and see what do we do with the chapter? What do we do with this chapter? It's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, I was thinking when I was reading over it the other night about uh, the writers for the movie. Like, if you're a screenwriter, you have to adapt a, a novel. And you come across this chapter, and what do you do? Most of it is, is just um, description and action. It's not like you can take something here and take something really significant and meaty and, and put it in there. So it seems to me it's, it's, it's an oddly placed thing. I wonder what we can make of it. We'll see what we can do here. So um, let's start off with the we visit what we were talking about with the dragon, and just so we can go back to that. Because, of course, we're at a point here in Chapter 13 where uh, the hobbit and the dwarves have flushed out the dragon. Bilbo's uh, driven the dragon out from the conversation that he's had with him and angered him, and then he's gone out of the, the mountain. And we're sitting here without knowing what's going on, if we were to follow the, the novel chronologically. We don't know what's going on. No, he, we know what's going on, right? Because we've read it. But other people who are reading it linearly don't know yet what's going on. And so, What's going to become of the dragon is sort of held as a mysterious thing in the novel itself. But we had talked last time about all these things about the dragon and the nature of the dragon and what the dragon was and, and how to deal with the dragon. And I think it would be neat to go back to that and maybe think about that a little bit, just to see if there are any bases that we haven't touched yet or anything that's still tied up yet that we have to, uh, that we have to cover. One of the things we are talking about with the, the dragon was that the dragon had a certain, there was a lust there in the dragon for the hoard of wealth. The dragon was this other, other humanly creature. It wasn't human. It was like lizard-like. And that it was a force of power. And that it was something which um, represented uh, an element of pride. 
and, and also seemed to represent an element of not wanting to um, face uh, the inevitable, the death uh, that everybody has to face. And so you have all this intellect and all this powerful thought going on, but it's all at the service of keeping yourself alive. And, uh, oh, I see. Okay, so um, this dragon image that we covered last time, he is definitely something that specializes in riddling, and he is definitely something that's malevolent. So of course, it's malevolent. Um, and this particular dragon is a gold-red dragon. So it's a dragon that has the fire that is also in the fire of the apostles at Pentecost and the fire of the Holy Spirit, and that fire, which is the same fire of God that burns in, in Hades. So you've got all these elements to the dragon here where that holy fire has been corrupted in a way and made into this violent, destructive fire, almost like the, the fire of Prometheus brought down from the heavens. Hold that thought. There we are. So going over more of these elements of the dragon, we talked about something of the origins of the dragon and looked a little bit at what Tolkien himself was saying about dragons. And he was always, he always had a strong desire to find dragons. He said he was always looking for dragons for most of his life. And um, there's a quotation which from Tree and Leaf on fairy stories, which kind of embodies this, if you don't mind, I'm gonna share this here. He says, uh, I did not like being told that um, dinosaurs were dragons. So children expect the differences they feel but cannot analyze to be explained by their elders or at least recognized not to be ignored or denied. I was keenly alive to the beauty of real things, but it seemed to me quibbling to confuse this with the wonder of other things. I was eager to study nature, actually more eager than I was to read most fairy stories, but I did not want to be quibbled into science and cheated out of fairy by people who seem to assume that by some kind of original sin, I should prefer fairy tales. But according to some kind of new religion, I ought to be induced to like science. So he was very against this idea that, that dinosaurs were dragons, because he said dragons are a different thing entirely. They're, they're more in the realm of fairy than they are in the realm of science. And he says at one point, I, I don't remember where the quotation is exactly, but it says at one point, I really longed to see dragons most of my life. Um, and then he was amazed, of course, when he saw them there on, on the fields of of uh, France. Here's the quotation. He says, I desired dragons with profound desire. Of course, I and my timid body did not wish to have them in the neighborhood, but the world that contained even the imagination of Fafner was richer and more beautiful at whatever cost of peril. So for Tolkien, I think the idea of a dragon or seeing a dragon was a confirmation of that world of fairy, that were that rich world of the imagination. And so he really wanted to see one. He wanted to find one uh, in the world. And it wasn't like he was looking for a physical lizard. That wasn't the thing he was looking for. He was looking for some confirmation of this world of fairy that might actually confirm that this world of the imagination was something real. And um, then he found it. Of course, he found it in World War I, and it, it terrified him. He realized that, that this world of the imagination was extremely weird and real, and probably more real than the mundane and um, tawdry world that he had to deal with there in combat and uh, the military. So back to this idea of what is a dragon. 
you know, it's that corruption of the, of the holy fire. It's a corruption of the intellect. It's a, a beast that desires wealth or likes to hoard wealth, but it also loves riddles and it's in love with its own intellect. But it's also, for Tolkien, it's a confirmation of the world of um, the imagination. Because for Tolkien, the imaginative world was something very eminent, was something very, very immediate. It wasn't just something you did on your spare time. For him, it was something that really affected the way people acted and thought and behaved in the world. So very, um, very real for him. And one other thing on this is that for Tolkien, like for C.S. Lewis and for um, G.K. Chesterton, the dragon was something which very much involved the human consciousness, heroism, how we respond to our own demise, uh, it was a, it was it represented something that was in us already. It already existed there already. So there's a quotation I think we said last time. Oh, it was G.K. Chesterton we talked about last time, and Chesterton was misquoted by Neil Gaiman at one point. And I think this is the quotation here. Neil Gaiman said in his book um, that fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. And Chesterton's actual quotation is the, is the following. Fairy tales that are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly that is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Okay, so then the question to, to kind of kick off our rethinking of the dragon here goes back to what is a dragon, but is the dragon then part of that world of imagination? And if you kill the dragon, do you have to kill imagination? That's, that's sort of what I think would be good to tackle first. Is the dragon part of, purely part of, of the imagination, or should we say simply part of the imagination? And if we kill the dragon, do we inevitably kill the imagination? What do you think? Well, I think the first um, thing for me is, you know, there's two ways we can talk about imagination, though. You know, with that, and I think to, to, it may be important to be cautious or to, to clarify our terms. Um, the, you know, around the idea of what is imagination when we're talking about imagination, because oftentimes, right, we, you know, the way that we use it in the parlance of our times, um, you know, we think of imagination as, as something in and of itself not real, like it was only imaginary, i.e. it wasn't there. No. Um, and, and, and I think rather I mean, to provide a clarification to, to the folks out there in radio land, I think the, uh, you know, rather we're, we're talking about something different. We're talking about, uh, the way that Tolkien would be referring to it or the way that he talks about it in the realm of fairy is that there's a secondary reality. Uh, he really spells that out, uh, in, in great detail, uh, although not fully, but in great detail in his essay on fairy stories that there's a secondary kind of world and therefore a secondary kind of reality. Uh, and it's not unreal, but it's a different register of reality. Uh, and so given that, that it's not merely the, uh, 
I remember if you remember uh, decades ago, I suppose, there was Disney or Epcot had Figment, this little purple dragon. Like for a while, there was just this feature. It was kind of this thing in one of the theme parks. I think it was Epcot somewhere. But, um, and there was this little purple dragon, a dragon of all things, right? His name was Figment. And it was explaining what it means to be a figment of your imagination. They were exploring the world of imagination, something like this. Um, but that's a very, and, and you know, it's kind of the typical way that moderns tend to think about imagination, which I say is a very reductionistic mm. use of the term um, that reduces imagination to mere epiphenomena of neurological neurons bumping into each other and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so with that groundwork, are dragons something in imagination? Um, I and I would prefer the word fairy or um, what does Mikhail Ende use in Neverending Story? Fantastica, yeah, uh, fantasy, which of course becomes you know, where we get the the the, the literary the name for the literary genre, um, and, and in that way, you know, are dragons part of fantasy, fantasia, fantastica? Yes, absolutely, and I think moreover they're not merely present in that world, and it is a world. It is a world. It's not unreal. It's a different kind of thing. Um, but they're present there, but they also can bridge into this world, like all things in Fantastica. Mm. Like all things in Fairy, there are, um, there are moments, there are spaces, there are ways in which there's uh, bridging between this world and that secondary world. And that can happen in a variety of ways. There's a lot of debate that can happen around how we, you know, we could have around what that means, what that looks like. But uh, in the basic sense, I say dragons are in this world too, to some degree and in some fashion, as you indicated with, you know, Tolkien's experience of dragonness on the uh, in the trenches of World War One, as one uh, one manifestation of that. But I think I want to I want to put it back just sort of. A point on that that because they're able to be present in this world dragons dragonishness and and as well as all the other things of fairy but dragons particularly they're not only something that's external and i think this is one of the key sort of psychological insights to the whole chapter as this this intercourse what well, the, the preceding chapter and then this chapter with sort of the intercourse with the dragon the the dragonish you know we're confronted with the dragonishness of Bilbo, the dragonishness of the dwarves, kind of these intersections of all three figures, the dwarves, Bilbo and, and Smaug, crossing lines here because they're, they're together in one place and they're sort of touching, literarily speaking. Um, and so we see different aspects of what that dragonishness can look like. And, and that, the, that I think there's a danger in writing off the idea of dragons as being merely imaginary or existing only in that secondary world, because that... Um, that would be to leave out of our calculations the dragon that lives very nearby to us, and that's the dragon that could live within our own hearts. Mm. And we need to be able to conquer that and understand what that is, or conquer ourselves. We may be the dragon. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I think there's a lot to, to see. And we can't we don't want to just write that off that way. No, and yet the, the modern world the modern world does on a regular basis, which is a very odd to me. Um, mm -hmm. that that there is a tendency in, in modern, there's a tendency in modernity to say, well, it's only a myth. Or to say, well, uh, movies, for instance, are, are good entertainment, but there's nothing else there. Uh, mm -hmm. 
there, there's a tendency to say that there's the human imagination, for instance, that the world of fairy, if you will, is a nice thing to, for us to toy with and to, and to amuse ourselves with. But when it comes down to it, it's not, it doesn't have the seriousness of say inventing a new widget or a right. new cog um, or, or balancing, you know, balancing the, the company's budget or something like that, the more serious things. You have to grow up from that world of childish thought, of whimsy, into the real serious world of adulthood. That seems to me a tendency that, that frequently occurs. I mean, for instance, you, you were talking earlier about how some colleges uh, mm -hmm. look at language and mythology and literature as sort of, yeah, you're nice, and we're glad you're here, I suppose, but you know, the real important stuff is happening in the engineering or the business uh, schools. Mm -hmm. We'll suffer we'll you to exist but you're not, you're not the, 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 the crown jewel of our program. That seems to be a, a, a common theme, even among some liberal arts schools today, which are gravitating towards an MBA uh, program yeah. instead of a literature or yeah. history or what have you. Yeah. And yet, and yet, the literature stuff seems to keep coming up like a weed over and over again. There's a resilience to it, I, not just literature, classes and departments, but the very fact that human beings still seem to have this strange thing where we create stories and tell myths and sing songs and make art, even if it's not published art. And we, we do this over and over again. It's almost like if I were to be the, the modern advocate, it's almost like we can't grow up as a race. Why don't we just <laughs> give up this silly dalliance with, uh, with illusions and get on with it? Tell it, grad grind. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Facts. Facts. You need. Yeah. So it, it, on the one hand, it may be that our race is stunted and cannot grow up, or, or, and this is the core that I subscribe to, there is something inherent in the nature of fairy that has a reality that we keep trying to capture. We tr we, we keep recognizing right. something in us that that requires this myth making almost. Mm -hmm. I think that's much more to the case. I think yeah. if, if you get rid of the, if you get rid of the myth making, you get rid of the humanity itself. Humans stop being humans and they become, they become part of the cog of the machine. Right. And I think that's exactly it. And this is where, you know, I, uh, educators in the humanities do, do, or, you know, the, the members of our, of our profession do ourselves a disservice when we, try and come to the defense of the humanities, liberal arts, literature, whatever, to say that, well, no, 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 you need us because we help, this stuff helps make life richer. It's, mm. you know, uh, it's, it, life is happier with this, it's better with this, it's gooder, fuller, all of that kind of stuff, which may be true, but it's, it, that is admitting at a certain level that it's only secondary, that it really is an extra, huh. you know, cake plus extra frosting, you, know, you get the extra frosting, it's better. But it's still, it's not cake. It's not the real thing. Yeah. Um, whereas what you're proposing, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, is that it's actually the fundamental. Yeah. This is something, hum it's not an extra that makes human living nicer, but it's an essential part of being human. And you get rid of that, and we don't immediately, as biological species, disappear. But humans cease to be humans. And I would venture to say further that they don't escape Fantastica. They don't escape fairy. 
but they become goblins. They become orcs. Mm. Yeah. They become when you when you devote yourself to the machine and merely material in life. Like when you devote yourself to the merely material in life, you become more like a machine. And you devote yourself to the machinery um, that that devolves very quickly uh, to to something subhuman, to something more orcish, as we've seen over the last century and a half now. Yeah, because the orcish is the purely practical, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked earlier about, or it would be funny if the orcs were depicted as being just these bored bureaucrats, you know, just the, the whole thing was kind of tedious, but you had to get it done. Race in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's, oh, yeah. God, what are, I can't think of it, but yeah. The the highway, the, the, the uh, uh, interstellar highway that destroys the earth, for instance, you know. Right, um, you know. Yeah, and uh, two stories come to mind. Um, and one is involving what's called the, um, oh, who's the, is it, Gore it's Goreski, the, the Symphony of Sorrowful Songs by Goreski. Okay. You've heard this? this uh, not okay. to my recollection. So anybody listening, I would highly recommend listening to Henrik Goreski, G-O-R-E-C-K-I, his Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. It's a beautiful work. There's a wonderful version that's done by with Dawn Upshaw as the soprano voice. Uh, it's a lovely piece of work. I mean, lovely. It's, it's heartrending is what it is. Now, now in this piece of work, Goreski took poetry, prayer poetry, that was written by a young girl who was held captive by these SS officers there in Poland. And she, she, she was held in a closet and raped repeatedly until they killed her. And in her cell, she wrote on the walls this poetry to God, this love poetry to God. And, it's, and the whole symphony is based on that, that Goreski created these pieces of music to, um, to highlight her, her suffering, but also her beauty. That in the midst of this suffering, here she was creating this magnificent poetry. Now, why do I bring this up besides just giving a plug for fantastic music? Um, in the midst of her suffering, at the hands of men that were trained in the ma machine of the modern world, in, in the midst of her suffering, she doesn't create a blueprint for a better flying helicopter. She doesn't sit there creating uh, a, a series of mathematical um, uh, tallies to make sure her checkbook is okay. She creates poetry. And that's a stunning representation to me of this whole world of mythology, of the, of the fairy, of the imagination, whatever we want to call it. It's not that it's, it's making life better or more bearable, though it's probably that. It's that there was something in her that in the midst of her suffering, almost like impelled her to do this. It was what kept her human when she was being made into an animal or a play toy or a beast of some kind. That to me is a powerful statement to what we're talking about. That the human spirit doesn't give up very easily. And it certainly doesn't give up its artwork. You know, you, you could take from us our lives, our land, and our, but you cannot take from us our, our art, right. so to speak. The other really powerful uh, vignette is Christopher Tolkien himself there in World War II. And his father was, uh, John Ronald Rule was sending him drafts of The Lord of the Rings mm -hmm. to, to keep him up to date. So he sent him a copy of what he'd written. And Christopher was reading it aloud to his bunkmates there in World War II. 
And he says in one of his letters, back to his father, that the world, the war in Middle Earth was far more real than the war in Europe to him and the rest of the men. They were, they were taking, not just solace, they were more involved in what was going to happen there with the ring. They didn't, I mean, comparatively, they didn't give two hoots about what was going to happen with Adolf Hitler. They cared about what was going to happen with Sauron and Bilbo, or I mean, Frodo. Yeah. Oh. Yes, and that, that is, strikes me as very cool. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. if I can just riff on that theme, it's because, and, and I, I just want to say, because it's strong, it strikes us as strange to hear that. Because, but okay, it's World War II, you're a part of this big, this thing, this momentous historical, uh, difficult, tragic, sure, big historical thing. Um, and that brings up an excellent point that, of course, for people living through historical moments, which is every one of us every day, uh, what's more real to us are not the gigantic events that move world affairs. Those only exist in the abstract. What exists really for us is the 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 the, the lilacs coming into blossom. Yeah. The 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 sound of a cricket chirping somewhere in the next room uh the 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 which then also the stories then that we tell which give voice to the greater battle that is being fought by christopher and each one of his compatriots in the in the bunker there yeah. the barracks they're fighting a battle they're the war they're fighting the same war that you and i are fighting that's not the war against it's not the war wherein they are mere soldiers or cannon fodder as part of a bigger international conflict the real war that they're fighting is language to or giving frame to or giving shape to our own experience as humans in the world and if we obliterate that world or if we neglect that world or if we say it's only secondary to say mm -hmm. uh, engineering um then what we end up doing is we end up diminishing the very humanity that we have been blessed with. Does that yes. ring true? Yeah. Okay, so then the, yeah. the second question in that is, in the midst of that world, um, do we create these images and ideas or do we discover these images and ideas? Now, Tolkien used to say he wasn't creating the story of the Lord of the Rings, he was discovering it. He kept discovering things and writing them down. Exactly. And you talk to any good, really well-accomplished author, this is a common experience, this is a common thing they express, is that the plot line begins to take on a life of its own. They don't know what's going to happen to Dumbledore at the end. Or right. They may have a plan, but then all of a sudden this thing happens. You hear authors are surprised at the actions of their own characters. Yeah. Yeah. And to, and to try wrestle it, would be to do violence to it. I remember uh, yeah. great statement. You see, film or uh, TV TV series makers do this all the time, and they wrestle the character into <laughs> this preconceived, this pre-written plot, and the fans go 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 nuts. They hate. Yeah, this, right? pisses me off. That's that's a that's a deal breaker for me in in terms of a series. You know, when you have a character that's built up all this clout, and then suddenly the character is something completely out of character. I mean, that's right. like Battlestar Galactica, for for instance, for me, it was hard to watch because you'd have a character who. Mm they built up all this clout and then in the next episode they like kill themselves and it was completely out of character it's like no way would that happen that's just that right. wouldn't happen but uh, yeah michelangelo had a famous quotation where he was he said that he doesn't he didn't sculpt um mm -hmm. figures out of stone 
He said he released them from the stone that they were trapped in. Exactly. The, the, the great statue of David, for instance, was actually a used block of stone. Somebody else had started carving on it, said they couldn't do anything. Oh, really? They couldn't do anything at all with it because it was just the stone was bad. Michelangelo bought that block of stone and he created the dip or he released the David from it. Right. Which is a great example of, I think, what we're talking about. I don't think any artist worth anything is actually creating at all. Uh, they are discovering or releasing or, um, I don't know, uh, coming upon realities in the art as they do it. Now, they may have a plan. That doesn't mean they don't have a plan, a skill, and a they're discovering yeah. things, new vistas. In which case, what they're doing then is transmitting something to us. They're acting as a sort of a, a bridge or connection to another world. So then we're not merely, when we create art, literature included, we're not merely documenting our internal you know, experience of the human condition, but we are discovering and making possible. So what literature and art does for us because you might say, well, I didn't have these experiences. What does somebody else's art do for me, right? Why should I just make things that are my own expression? Is that the answer to that is because that art, that literature doesn't merely describe something that I've experienced or am experiencing. It, it gives me access uh, yeah. to other experiences that I can't otherwise ever haven't otherwise yeah. had. Yeah, and so I too can sing the rage of Achilles, even if I'm not, haven't been at the battle of um, uh, the siege of Troy. Right. And, and because we're discovering something through art, we're discovering a universal thing that we all share in, which we could, we could call humanity, I suppose, in a previous age. Um, mm -hmm. And that thing that we're discovering then allows the art to be eternal and universal, that anybody can access this because they have, they share whatever the thing is. Well, I guess something akin to the Spiritus Mundi that uh, Carl Jung talked about, you know, the, the shared, mm -hmm the shared spirit of the world that every human being taps into to some, to, to some degree. Uh, right. And, and in that, you know, in that discovering of the world, it leaves little room for what now is popular, which is self-expression. You know, art is merely self-expression, just express yourself. And whatever you think art is, is art. You know, you, you blow your nose on the wall and that's art, you know. It's mm -hmm. not because it's, it's not because, um, <laughs> Because what it's not doing is it is it isn't tapping into or discovering something universal, and that right. the key is there's a great movie called The Horse's Mouth with Alan Guinness where the artists try to capture something and at the end of the the the, the movie having created all this art the two artists are standing there and looking at their own art and they said that wasn't it that's not it that didn't capture okay. it hmm. so it's almost like they 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 didn't quite get it and they have to try again. And so most artists end up being driven to try to recreate or try to capture something because it doesn't quite get the, the thing fully for them. I'm right. totally obsessing over stuff. Um, or our, what's his name? Uh, Leopold Stokowski uh, throwing chairs because people can't get the music right, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, in, in that, you know, I was thinking there's a... Um, there's a line out of Peter Gabriel, and I know I brought Peter Gabriel up last time. Yeah. Gabriel. Uh, Peter Gabriel says in one of his songs, all of the, something to the effect of all the buildings and all of the cars were once just dreams yeah. in somebody's head. Yes. And this is another piece to this because the discovery of this other world, the discovery of that, that humanity, if you will, that, that, that unseen world, 
ends up manifesting in this world, either as inventions or as uh, documents or as actions, uh, because mm -hmm. everything that we create or, or have around us has somehow flowed out of that other realm into this realm through, right. through artwork, through artifice, craft. Which means we have the capacity then to co-create or sub-create, which is the terminology that Tolkien himself uses. Yes. Somehow drawing on this, 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 you know, Plato would kind of describe as this other realm and be able to take these things and incarnate them in the world. And so we have this almost by human nature, they would say, especially the Neoplatonists were really into this, uh, a notion that man is sort of, uh, has a natural sort of quasi priesthood yeah. of making present in the, in this world, things from the divine or heavenly realm. Yep. Yes, and, and along those lines, Plato's whole discussion of the uh, divided line and his discussion of the forms, all of that is an attempt to get at this very issue. What is it that we're discovering? What, right. are, what are we actually manifesting? <laughs> Manifest these cars and buildings or artwork or meals or uh, floral <laughs> arrangements or whatever the heck it is. What is it that we're actually doing? His great image, of course, in the, in, the, in the myth of the cave, the allegory of the cave, his great image is of the shadow uh, puppets, the thaumatopoioi, as, as they're called. A, the, a Greek word which is interesting to, to untangle because it's thaumatos poios. Okay? Right. It's marvelous thaumatos, marvelous poios creations, marvelous creations. But translates to shadow puppets because they used to have this um, this this entertainment system at the time, their AV equipment at the time, was to set a light behind a screen and then have these puppets mm -hmm. that you would play and the shadows would show up on the screen and people would see this as an entertainment source. They still do this in the Wayang in Indonesia. It's a similar thing. Yeah. But for him, in that allegory of the cave, people are chained to the ground watching this thing. And then their chains are released and they get up and they leave the cave and they discover that what they were watching before was shadows and the real things are the things outside the trees and the flowers and the sun and the moon and the stars and the whole myth is normally taken to be this you've got to move away from the shadows and into the light of the uh, the real world which i think is a legitimate reading but it, it misses a point which is that the whole story is itself a, a shadow in fact the whole allegory the whole uh, republic is a shadow and shadows end up having a very distinct purpose Artwork has a real purpose. Its purpose is to prompt us to move towards the reality they're trying to capture. So people often ask, well, what causes the chains to fall off? I, I maintain it's the shadows themselves, the thaumatopoioi themselves. It's not that it's not that the shadows are part of a uh, thing that, that seeks to entrap people, as the Gnostics right. say. It's rather that the shadows are the things that prompt the person to get up and the chains break like, 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 plastic or fruit loops or something to pop off and then prompts them to go out and find the real things that the shadows are trying to capture right yes because a shadow and these are you know it's, they're not just mere simulacra that are put up on a wall it's there's two ways we can look at a shadow right i can see a shadow as though it's the thing itself or if i you know something clicks in my head or in my heart I'm able to see that a shadow on the wall indicates there's something behind me that's yeah, casting. Right. Shadow. Yes. Right. Should and that's the way that show should work is draw me towards the source. 
of that yes. the thing that's actually called casting the shadow yes not yet uh, absorbed merely in the shadow itself or in the shadows of shadows the yeah. emanation numbers and all that and and i love the image there that the shadows are behind you as though somehow the the light itself is coming into your the back of your skull and mm. yourself are casting a shadow you know that's why the priests used to tonsor the backs of their heads is because the the light of the the lord came in through the head that's why women veiled themselves in mass too because they didn't want to have that ecstatic experience suddenly in mass and, and start going you know talking in tongues <laughs> so you shadow your head so that the lord doesn't enter into you in the midst of 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 uh, the religious ceremony um mm -hmm. but it's also interesting because those those shadows are there to prompt us to see something greater than this world, but they do have a tendency to also trap us. And that trapping quality, you know, people often think that, you know, things like the Avengers are real in terms of like actual in the, in the world or, mm -hmm. or they think that there's, uh, that the, the world is operating in a certain way because they saw it on the television or they, or they right. heard it on the radio. Um, and, in many ways, that's true. Our perception is formed by whatever we are watching and whatever is uh, the mind focuses on expands. But our, uh, our perception has to be of things that are beyond this world and not just things in this world. We can't just be trapped by those things themselves. And that whole thing comes up in the story of Gygus's ring, the, the earlier myth in Plato. The, the ring yeah. of Gygus ends up being something that's, that's definitely connected to the shadows. And I think this can be a nice bridge to come back to Tolkien to talk about what, how does the, how does the ring relate to the dragon? How are those two things connected to one another? But before we do, mm -hmm. before we do, I think it's necessary to ask one more question about this. And we talked about why mythology, why imagination is valuable. We talked about whether we're discovering or creating something. And we talked about how it, it manifests in the world. But in our discovery of things, then, we want to think that all the things we discover are nice. Mm -hmm. And they turn out that they're actually more Balrog-y and dragonish, which raises this question. What is it that we're discovering when we discover a dragon or a Balrog? Right. What are we really finding? Mm. And by the way, I'm not saying... Cameron Thompson, you need to know this. You need to give us the answer. Give me a question that hangs in the air for everybody listening. What is the dragon? And maybe we don't even know it until we actually experience it ourselves, possibly. Yeah, because, well, I mean, you know, one, one simple answer, and I think it's not wrong, <clears throat> is that not all things from the realm of fairy are good. Yeah. Right, there's, there's an evil, I mean, this is why, uh, for instance, in North mythology, Norse mythology, same thing, in North mythology, you don't have only <clears throat> some, you know, sort of one other world that is all the sprites and fairies and elves and dwarves and gnomes. And there's different ones because they, some, you know, the line, somewhat, sometimes the line is because there's more benevolent and more malevolent. Yeah. None of them are safe. They're all perilous. I mean, that's the characteristic of fairy, that even the the holiest and goodest, greatest, uh, are still perilous. You know, the elf queen is still perilous, but, um, but there are also malevolent creatures, right? There are dragons, there are goblins, there are orcs, that kind of thing. 
um, demons, uh, you know, the malevolency. I think that that has to be taken into account as well. Yes. Um, that we can tap into things that are evil uh, just as much as things that are divine and good. Um, and that also means then that there is necessarily combat in life and in art, that art itself entails battle, struggle, war, because you're fighting against that which is evil. Yeah, it's unavoidable. Right. And that's where I think that's that keen insight into that, uh, the, the quote by Chesterton uh, that Gaiman picked up is that we know intuitively, we know from, from the womb that dragons exist. Mm. Good literature shows us how to slay a dragon, or at least tells the song of the way in which a dragon can be slain, the yeah. fact that a dragon can be slain. Um, and so it's not to say you can't write about dragons or goblins or anything like that, but, but that there's these, these different kinds of elements that we tap into that we can make present in this world, or rather through doing good art, we can tell the tale wherein the evil can be fought and conquered because the evil is also incarnated in the world through other forms of art. Remembering that the word art simply means technique, skill, know-how, something beyond what we typically mean by technique, but I mean know-how, skill, craft of doing a thing. Mm -hmm. And people can use their, their, their inborn capacity for craft to make art to, to tell good literature, or they can use the capacity for craft to build brutalist apartment uh, blocks in a great Soviet style, yeah, yeah. or to make atomic bombs, yeah. or do other sorts of terrible things. Yeah, and that capacity for horror and awfulness and brutality towards other human beings, that is, it may not be the dragon, but it certainly is a manifestation of the dragon. Yeah. So whatever yeah. we're talking about, when we talk about the dragon, uh, may be uh, manifested in our own human capacity for awfulness and horror to one another, but to the world around us as well. Um, and, and yes, it, that seems to crop up in art. In art. Uh, right. our, our, our human person is, is very strange because we're very capable of great love and great devotion and great honor and glory. And yet we're also capable of incredible depths of awfulness that no animal is, is capable of achieving. I, I marvel at people that want to think that humans are completely devoid of evil, you know, that, that, that everything we do can be fixed by a pill or that everything that we do can be fixed by just happy thoughts and, and yoga. Or, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not bashing yoga for those of you who are yoga fans. Um, like real legitimate yoga in yeah. its origin, not this fluffy stuff yeah, right. that you run today. Yeah, like the real yogis of the day, their whole goal, of course, was to try and somehow divinize. And, yeah. And call but I'm way. also, but I'm also equally fascinated by by people that think that humans are completely depraved because the opposite. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a well, weird thing. How how do you get this? These extremes on either side. It's really that's a, a screwy vision. We just saw that in the last chapter. That's I think yeah. that's the answer is right there because what you can. A person can get to that place. One of these other extremes, as you're just that you just identified, is is through the same process of entering into conversation with the dragon. These thoughts, these you know, the idea where the dragon can twist words, twist truth, bend things to begin to pervert your own way of thinking, because a dragon has a forked tongue. He's able to say two things and make you think two contrary things at the same time yeah. and twist words 
so that you distrust. Yeah. Because in, so that you distrust, that you, you, you begin to be poisoned in a way. This is the way that dragons are poisonous. They're not venomous in their fangs. Well, they can be like the Komodo dragons, but they, they are venomous in their speech. So that when you begin to doubt this, when you begin to think uh, humans are either incapable of evil or they are purely evil and depraved, in either case, your solution is a technology to make humans unhuman mm. because they're either dangerous or the, you, you, you see what I mean? Like in both yep. places, you're aiming at an unhumanity and that there's a, and I would say, I would propose there's a malevolent force behind that. Yep. And that is dragon speech. Yes, I would agree totally. That's, we see that certainly in Saruman later on in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Dragon speech that he infects. He has exactly that same skill, doesn't he? Yeah. I'm reading right now Crime and Punishment. I'm almost finished with it. And it's interesting to go back to it after 20 years or so to see new things in that work. And one of the things I'm really amazed by, by uh, Dostoevsky is that he creates characters that are they're, they're pretty bad seed. You know, uh, mm -hmm. Illusion, for instance, is not a really, it's not a nice guy. But at the same time, they are characters who have elements in them that are distinct. They're very human. They're, they're, they're like sympathetic almost. Like you can see that they're bad, but you also see they're very sympathetic characters. And that's something which I, th I think is, is difficult to grasp if you start getting infected by this dragon speech. You, you, it's difficult for a person to grasp the idea that human beings struggle, that human beings are trying to make their way in the world and, and oftentimes mm -hmm. are motivated by things that are completely understandable why they would do these things in another venue. Uh, Jordan Peterson has often said, if you were a citizen of the Weimar Republic in the 1930s, it's highly likely that you would probably be supporting Adolf Hitler. You wouldn't be this sort of like all Nazis suck. You'd probably mm -hmm. see all these good things they were doing and you'd say, you know, I'm on board with this, how Hitler, you know. People do this all the time. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, to get at this this dragon thing too, Cameron, do you mind if I bore you with two quotations here? These are really good thinkers. Joseph Campbell, who was a, uh, a thinker on mythology, writer on mythology of the 20th century, a very fine thinker in his, in his day, he wrote extensively about the dragon and the nature of the dragon. And I think his interpretation is well worth thinking about here. Let me read this a short quotation from him. He okay. says, dragons represent greed. The European dragon guards things in his cave, and what he guards are heaps of gold and virgins, and he can't make use of either of them, but he just guards. There's no vitality of experience, either of the value of the gold or of the female whom he's guarding there. Psychologically, the dragon is one's own binding of oneself to one's ego, and you're captured in your own dragon cage. The real dragon is in you. The first stage in the hero adventure when he starts off on adventure is leaving the realm of light, which and knows about and moving towards the threshold and it's at the threshold that the monster of the abyss comes to meet him and then there are two or three results one the hero is cut to pieces and descends into the abyss in fragments to be resurrected or he may kill the dragon power as Siegfried does when he kills the dragon but then he tastes the dragon blood that is to say he has to assimilate that power and when Siegfried has killed the dragon and tasted the blood he hears the song of nature he has transcended his humanity, you know, and reassociated himself with the powers of nature, which are the powers of our life from which our mind removes us. Okay. So Campbell, really, he interprets the dragon as being obviously an antithetical force, but one that either destroys us and then we have to rebuild ourselves, or it's something which 
we conquer and then we assimilate that power into ourselves. And I think there's some value in that. I think that when we start tackling this image of the dragon, we're, we're tackling something which can be beneficial if it's defeated and conquered, but which is malevolent to us. One, one thing that I, I don't quite agree with on Campbell is that he seems to think that the, the, the dragon is merely a psychological entity. He doesn't okay. seem to at all indicate that dragons exist whether I recognize them or not, or that dragons are, yeah, they're in me, as, as Chesterton points out, but they're also, it's not me talking to myself. You know, it's, um, right. if I were to converse with a dragon, God forbid, I would not hear me. It would not be something I'm controlling. It's right. something other that talks to us. And again, it goes back to this recognizing a landscape rather than simply creating a landscape that we talked about in artwork. So I'm not the source of these things. There's another ex plane of uh, existence on which they, they pre-exist yeah, me uh, and have access to them. Yeah, yeah. Call it the metaphysical, call it the demonic, whatever we want to call it. It's, it's something else beyond this world that we tap into and then talks to us. Mm-hmm. And if we are so foolish as to simply listen, it can be very, very dangerous. Precisely. Precisely. Um, and there, there was an interesting part of his quote, uh, just to, to highlight the immediate connection to what Tolkien does here in the last two chapters and in this chapter, is that he sort of talks about the, there's an element where the hero has to leave his comfort and all these things. And of course, we've been drawing this connection between Bilbo sitting in his little horde of Bag End as a little tiny plump bourgeois dragon uh, himself. Really. There's a sort of dragonishness to Bilbo and he goes and literally the previous chapter to the one we're discussing today is called <clears throat> On the Doorstep or On the Threshold, yeah. right? So that he comes to the threshold and then the creature from beneath comes to meet him or in the case, he actually goes down, which is to draw, of course, on, an ancient, on the ancient imagery of descending and ascending at the same time, the Jacob's right. Ladder kind of imagery. Right. By going down, you go up. And in this way, he's going down to meet the dragon. His own dragonishness is sort of being called to the surface and drawn out like a venom or a poison. Where Bilbo goes down to the depths, as we saw in the last chapter, he disappears. He's invisible. Smaug is visible. And we hear Smaug's voice. And so the two kind of, in some way, are merged into one. And that's what we're seeing, these two halves happening. But, as you just said, it's not Bilbo's own voice. He's not sitting down there talking to himself like Gollum Smeagol do, does, but he's got an external interlocutor. And yeah. one could argue that perhaps Smeagol has an external interlocutor to the ring, hence the connection between Smaug and the ring, but he has had that, he's been in conversation with that voice from outside for so many centuries, it's become him, or rather he's ceased to exist, which is what makes him Gollum in the first place. Yeah. Because the ring has consumed him just as the dragon is trying to first verbally, before uh, actually eating, trying to consume Bilbo with doubt and with anxiety in yeah. the chapter we just finished. So, so that kind of raises a little bit of that ring imagery that I wanted to at least try to touch on here is... Um, the ring has a similar effect to its wearers as the dragon speech does to its listeners. Right, yeah. And the ring certainly has its parallel in the Ouroboros of the dragon consuming its own tail, the image of time or infinity. 
Mm -hmm. The ring also has the ability to send a person into the other realm, the realm of the shadow. Right. Like we talked about with the Platonic Thaumatopoioi. And the dragon himself is a character that, for all intrinsic purposes, is surrounded in shadow. I mean, he lives in the dark. He's surrounded with smoke. Mm -hmm. He himself is coily, like, like, like clouds. So there are a lot of parallels between dragon and ring. And even the, the fact that the ring is created in Aradrin, which is the, the, the intense fire of the right. volcano, it's like the dragon fire. Gandalf says at one point that even dragon fire would not affect the one ring. It was that right. cool. So if that's the mm -hmm. case, then it, it raises a, another question here is what, what is the ring? And, and the ring obviously have parallels to the dragon. But is there a relationship in terms of what we've been talking about between whatever the ring is and what the dragon seems to be, which is connected to the ego, which is connected to the something else speaking to us? Is there a connection between these things? I don't have necessarily an immediate answer. I know that with the if we go back to the origin of this, the the uh, the Plato's ring, for instance, the ring there is a tool that allows a person to step behind the, the curtain of the, of the stage. It's mm -hmm. something which, in a way, allows a person to see how everything is um, a fabrication. Everything is, is a creation, a fabrication. And thus, you become an artist in the best mm -hmm. of it. You, you, don't, you don't necessarily have to violate the queen and kill the king. Right. Oh, even that is symbolic. Um, the ring in Gygus is a, is a powerful tool that allows you to become the artist, to become the Riddler, the, the person who makes riddles, not the Batman character, the person who actually has control over all this imagery rather than right. be subject to it. So there's that, that. Yeah, that's an interesting point that Golem, just taking the ring, even in the original version of The Hobbit, before the ring evolved to be this bigger cosmic thing that we see in Lord of the Rings, yeah. uh, importance that Gollum was, for all intent, we can say, Gollum was the ring master. He had the ring. He was master of the ring. He was the riddle. He had the riddles. Yeah. Bilbo defeated him at the riddle game through a cheap shirt. You know, it didn't quite work. But especially in Bilbo's original telling, he defeated him at the riddle game. He won the ring from from Gollum. Yeah. Uh, and but because he had more, he had better riddles. And now he's going, and he and Smaug are riddling together back and forth in a tête-à-tête uh, with the riddles. And and so there is, I think that's that running theme like a chain with the ring passing hands. And in this mm -hmm. case, here we transferred over to the dragon then the dragon is a superior Riddler than Bilbo. And we see that in the part, and again, this is, I mean, you know, this is of course all the, the last, you know, last episodes, chapter two, but the, um, that Bilbo gets in riddling with the dragon, he gives away more information than he intends to. And he gets so content, so he, he gets kind of proud of himself. I'm making pretty good riddles. That he, he, he fires a parting shot at the dragon. Yep. And gets his heels scorched for it. Yes, exactly. The, the yes. dragon wins in that way, and he's so he's unable to defeat the dragon. Oh. And if, if you'll let me get carried away with the thought here for a second, he's unable to defeat the dragon, which is what the, so that he actually wakens the dragon. The dragon comes out. It's from this the dragon wins in some ways, gets more power, 
the power of rage, that is a dragon's power, because you've stolen this stuff, you've thief, and now you've done this thing. That's why he sneaks out to go and smash the hit the mountainside and go wreak vengeance on and burn down Lake Town, right? right. And, and kill everybody there. Uh, so that Bilbo awoke the dragon then through this engaging in conversation. He himself, the worm was the seed of the worm in some ways was planted into his own mind about doubt and distrust of the dwarves, maybe somewhat warranted even. Um, doubt and distrust of the dwarves and the dragon himself then smell was awakened and empowered who then goes out and burns down lake town from this and the dragon otherwise gets defeated because bilbo himself is unable our protagonist cannot conquer his own dragon mm. it's slain for him he plays a part in it he's he's he tells the dwarves and the thrush over here is where the weak spot on the dragon is but they come down, and that's why when they go down in down the channel again, they discover that nobody's home. Mm, yeah, empty cave. So they now enter down into the darkness, and they're afraid there's a dragon around. Any any given corner could have the dragon hiding around it. But the reality is, he's been defeated for them. But now they still have to pass through the darkness of the underworld. Right, and right. come out unscathed. Right. And there's a lot there in what you were just talking about. I mean, for instance, that scene where he gets scorched by the dragon, I've always found that interesting. When you see the Rankin-Bass version, they they have the dragon spray fire everywhere, and he actually melts his own treasure, which would never happen. The dragon would <laughs> violate his own treasure. And then in the Jackson version, there's a whole fight scene with the dwarves, which is absolutely ludicrous. But in the actual scene, it, here's, the, here's the passage you're referring to. Um, Bilbo gets all cocky after he finds out about the weak spot in the dragon. Yep. And his one idea then was to get away, right? <laughs> okay, I got what I need. Now I need to leave. Well, I really right. must not detain you, he says. He really must not detain you, your magnificence, any longer, he said, or keep you from much needed rest. Ponies take some catching, I believe, after a long start. And so do burglars, he added as a parting shot as he darted back and fled up the tunnel. And I mean, that's really cheeky right there. You know, really cheeky little gun. Powerful dragon, you're old. You need some rest, you know. You've been moving around. I'm sure you're exhausted, old fogey, you old fart. So, and then he says, you know, and, and I, I'm hard to catch anyway, so see you bye. He's just like, I don't know. It's just really a snotty thing to say to the irreverent. And he, re he realized, that's, that's an interesting point, irreverent. It's, there's still a, reverence maybe isn't the right word in the way that we mean reverence today. But there's a way in which you need to, um, how did we say, uh, you know, when I was, yeah, when I was in Scouts or something, talking about venomous, you know, like vipers, yeah. you, you, you still got to respect the viper, like, yeah, have, have a healthy respect that that thing can, that thing can kill you. Yeah. You know, you, you don't laugh at live dragons. That's a <laughs> bad, bad, like basic gun safety. Oh. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't, you don't point that thing if you don't want to kill the thing. Um, it, it, exactly. This also reminds me, I hate to say it, it has the same kind of sense as what happens in the fairy tale of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You know, where she mm. comes in, and she's like, ah, my house, you know, my porridge, my, my furniture, my beds. And she mm -hmm. just uses the heck out of the house. And so when the bears come home, she's absolutely terrified and she, and she flees out of it. It's a similar type of thing, you know. Yeah. Have a little respect here, buddy. Um, but yeah, you're right. He learns his, his, his lesson because then the, the dragon, mm -hmm. as it says, spouted terrific flames after him and fast though he sped up the slope, he had not gone nearly far enough to be comfortable for the ghastly head of smog was thrust against the opening behind. 
Luckily, the whole head and jaws could not squeeze in, but the nostrils sent forth fire and vapor to pursue him, and he was nearly overcome and stumbled blindly on in great pain and fear. He had been feeling rather pleased with the cleverness of his conversation with Smog, but his mistake at the end shook him into better sense. Never laugh at live dragons. Bilbo, you fool, he said to himself, and it became a favorite saying of his later and passed into a proverb. <laughs> Never laugh at live dragons. Right. There are many things we can laugh at. Mm -hmm. Not not live dragons. Not while they're still around. Because while they're still around, they're very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. Okay. Now, that along the same line, there's this great passage here, if I can share with you, by Jordan Peterson. Yeah. He kind of talks about this, too. But he, Peterson is a modern commentator, and he speaks about things. He has a slight Joseph Campbell tint to him, but he, he's, I think, far beyond Campbell. He says, in European mythology, the dragon is something to face in combat and destroy, or something to face in combat and build something out of the pieces left over from the dragon. If your path from point A to point B is being blocked by something that you're afraid of, you better learn to confront it, because if you don't, it will grow and expand until it turns into the kind of dragon that occupies your whole house. Right. There's different kinds of dragons, right? There's natural dragons like death and disease, and then there's social dragons like bureaucracy and bureaucracies and tyrannies yet why would a dragon hoard gold because the dragon represents everything that you're afraid of what's embedded in everything that you're afraid of absolutely everything you need to find run from what you're afraid of run from exactly what you need to find okay i think that's that's some good stuff that it's it's in the defeating of the dragon that we gain the treasure that we're supposed to find now i would add mm -hmm. to even peterson and say you know there are uh there's natural dragons like death and disease there are social dragons like bureaucracies and tyrannies. There are metaphysical dragons, too. Mm -hmm. Certain forms of artwork, certain um, philosophical concepts, certain theological concepts. And even if you, you want to take it a step further, there may actually be dragons. Right. With that. Um, there may be something that actually speaks to us in, in, in some other realm beyond this one that we're only dimly aware of. That is a possibility. Yeah. Now, he's not going to acknowledge it. He's a, he's a modernist in the sense that he, you know, mm -hmm. what he can actually measure. But uh, it may be that the there are malevolent forces that use the artwork or the events of the day or the certain theological ideas or philosophical ideas in order to speak to us and riddle to us. That is a possibility. Yeah. You know? yeah. And well, I think that's... Once that gets embedded in us, like we've been saying, it can take a poisonous, you know, effect on us. Mm -hmm. And so we ought not to laugh too much at that. Right. Um, if that's for real, whatever you ascribe sort of the metaphysical nature to that, the phenomenon is very real yeah. and observable. Yeah. That these words, these thoughts come to us, these ways of thinking sometimes mediated through events, physical things that we see, um, you know, almost poisonous art that can exist out there as well, um, and, and other crafts that are destructive of, of humankind, um, but also our own thoughts, the thoughts of our own hearts can begin to twist and grow wormish in that way. And this is where there's sort of this, the, the, what I, ascribed as a, the psychological genius of the early Egyptian monastic uh, fathers, these men who went off into the wilderness to do battle with 
with these dragons, essentially yeah. they go off, they see themselves very much as, as, as a militia, as, as, as warriors, as knights, as this is where St. George, the idea of St. George and the dragon comes out of yes. the stories that these guys tell to each other as well, um, to describe their own experiences, but, and to teach, and to teach how to engage in the combat, uh, which is the, the principal point of the, the myth of George and the dragon, the story of George and the dragon. Um, but they externalize a lot of the things that we might talk about as, you know, sort of um, the the seven deadly sins or something like that. Mm. Uh, they they say no that yes these things exist. They're things that they they treat them more like spiritual maladies, sicknesses, and not to get too much into that. But the idea of externalizing the source for these things in outside or exterior external malevolent spirits whisper thoughts into your mind into your mm -hmm. heart and and oftentimes we just let these things into the castle the gates are open the you know the walls are down and let's just let them in and what they counsel what they advise their whole project is to learn how to become aware and attentive to these things so as to not let these enemies into the castle of, of our own hearts um but it the way that they talk about them is very much in line with this dragon speech they talk about it as dragon sometimes they use the word dragon speech but it's um, the way to describe it is 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 perfectly aligned with the way that you know in mythology we see dragons actually speak. The idea of here's a provoking thought, here's a way of twisting the truth, here's a way of twisting your your understanding of who you are, of riddling around various things to get you wrapped around, to get your mind wrapped around, coiled around, if you will, around a certain fixation, whether that's what people think of you, your reputation, whether that's gold, whether that's you know, virgins, sexual, you know, a, a temptation, that kind of thing, other women out there, right? So beginning to think like a dragon or anger, wrath, stirring up, and these kinds of things. Yeah. And they leave a person very worried beside themselves and ultimately coiled around this thing such that they're unable to escape from their own minds at that point. So again, like the band, the bands or the bonds of a ring, so to speak, you know, like mm -hmm. the collar ring that the Celts used to use in, in, in slavishness. You know, mm -hmm. one of the one of the things along the, those lines of what you're talking about here is the dragon certainly has to do with wrath and lust for material possessions and riddling and intellect. But one thing we haven't really brought up explicitly is that the, the connection of a dragon to hope and despair. Yes. We talked about, I think it was Ankalagon, or was it Glaurog, oh. who in the Silmarillion tells about his marriage to his sister, right? And I'm yes. sure confused here, but the dragon tells him he's married to his sister and that causes such despair in him that he kills himself. Um, that image of the dragon spreading despair, as he does try to do here with Bilbo, I think is a very important point along with the lines of what you're just saying. Yes. The idea that's planted ends up trying to destroy hope, trying to destroy the, the very vision of, of the possible flourishing in a human person. And it reminds me a great deal of a good uh, homily I just heard about the sins against the Holy Spirit. Now, I've always heard, of course, that the, that the only unforgivable sin of all sins, the only unforgivable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. My interpretation has always been that if you say, uh, the, the Lord cannot save me, I'm unsalvageable, then he can't violate your heart and therefore you can't, can't be saved you're thinking that you are not something that can be saved it, it, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy 
but this homily was good because it also pointed out that in the church there are six it's categorized as six different uh, violations of this six different forms or levels of the sins against the holy spirit and i did not know this and so anything that whenever i discover a new point of knowledge i'm always chuffed i'm like Hee -hoo. so these are this is saint pius the uh, in okay teaching this the the six different forms of violation of the holy spirit or, or sins against the holy spirit despairing of salvation i cannot be saved or presumption of salvation i'll be saved no matter what which is kind of like bilbo laughing at a dragon right it's all going to be good we're all safe right denying a truth you know if it's made apparent to you and you deny it that's actually a sin against the holy spirit which i was really interested to find out about because there's a lot of that going around these days mm -hmm. envying the grace that god gives to other people and envying the grace that god gives to other people is actually a sin against the holy spirit obstinacy in sin you know you know you're in sin but you persist anyway at all and then final impenitence which is that at the very end of life you refuse to be penitent you refuse to um, be forgiven those are the six different forms of the violation of the against the holy spirit or sins against the holy spirit the one the two that are most unforgivable are the despairing of salvation and the presumption of salvation both of which are like either sides of this um I, I either side of this uh despair hope thing going on because if you despair of salvation you lose hope in being saved mm -hmm. and if you presume salvation it's almost like you have too much hope if you will it's, you have you think that it's, it's coming to you no matter what happens and it's not hope anymore it's now reliance on your own it, yeah. somehow you, you've earned yeah. this or you're capable of doing this yourself yeah yes exactly yeah i'm capable of doing it myself i can i am i have come to the end of my journey and i've decided i do not want to throw the ring into the fire mm -hmm. it is mine that's that's a yeah, result but... of salvation so to speak where frodo says mm -hmm. the um, cracks at a rod run yeah so and, and and there's a really neat uh quotation here which i also stumbled on the other day this is from uh the eighth article of the creed seraphim alexevich slobodovsky okay okay in christianity and he says uh, jesus christ called the holy spirit spirit of truth and warned us all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men but the blasphemy against the holy spirit shall not be forgiven unto men blasphemy against the holy spirit is conscious and hardened opposition to the truth because the spirit is truth conscious and hardened resistance to the truth leads man away from humility and repentance and without repentance there can be no forgiveness that is why the sin of blasphemy against the spirit cannot be forgiven since one does not acknowledge his sin and does not seek to have it forgiven that's a really interesting point there it's hardened resistance to the truth hardened resistance yeah. to the truth. Hmm. and to take it back to the hobbit image if the dragon is deeply involved in this sin against the holy spirit this this destroying hope because of course that's what happens when you harden yourself against the truth you end up despairing that's the only route you know you go down into despair if that's the case then bilbo gandalf says later bilbo fought this battle he, he conquered the dragon there in the tunnel the uh, the narrator says this as well before he ever sees the dragon yeah so that when bard kills 
smog later on. It's that's that's appropriate. Bard does the killing. The the, the um, poet does the killing, or the art does the killing. But Bilbo had already conquered this thing, and so he didn't. He did not run the risk of this deep sin and and therefore despair and all that. And that's why he's able to give away then the Arkenstone to right. the elves and the men, or attempt to do so. And and yeah. I think I think in a way. The battle against despair, the battle against the dragon, mm -hmm. one that is fought in those dark tunnels alone is not necessarily the riddles and the ideas. He had already hardened his heart, so to speak, against or galvanized his heart against those riddles that would spread despair otherwise before he right. had the dragon. Although he's still wounded by them. He's not yep. made he's not made unmarkable. He's not made invulnerable. Right. He's invincible. He can't be conquered. He could hypothetically, but you know, he's unconquered. But that's not the same as invulnerable. No. He's able to be wounded. Yeah. And there's an interesting facet to that, in that later on in the Lord of the Rings, when both Bilbo and Frodo go to the undying country, because they are both of them wounded against the beauty of Middle Earth. Yeah. It, it has become a burden to them. And the the wound that Bilbo carries is one that he got from Smog here in the cape. It's, it, it happens sometime in the conversation. And it's probably yeah. when he was turned against the dwarves, I would suspect. Mm -hmm. Because then that, that grows and, well, if I can't trust dwarves, I can't trust other hobbits, I can't trust humans, I can't trust even else. Whom can I trust? Yeah. That, that grows, I think, in him over the course of the time. So by the time we get to him at the end of The Lord of the Rings, he's, he's struggling with it. You know, he's not been consumed by it, but it's a burden. It's a wound. And it's, it's a very much a wound that, Bilbo, that Frodo receives on Weathertop. Yes. When stabbed by the Nazgul. It works its way towards his heart. And so Frodo's agony of carrying the ring is, is heightened by that wound he gets on Weathertop. And then that's what he then goes to the Undying Lands in order to escape, in order to be able to be cured of it. I think the dragon, you don't laugh at live dragons because dragons, whether they're in the form of Nazgul or lizards or rings, dragons can cause something in you that is very burdensome for years and years and years to come. It's not mm -hmm. something easily cured. So right. you don't know, searching for them blithely and think, oh, we'll just, you know, find Puff the Magic Dragon and I'll be fine. No. No, that's 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 exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think it's interesting. You know, I'd, I'd say you know I think Bilbo defeats the dragon in the tunnel. He fights that battle there in the tunnel before he even goes and sees the dragon. Yeah. And I agree with that. I agree with you there. And and where Bard slaying the dragon is at one level an externalization of what Bilbo has already accomplished in himself in that way. Um, you know, his own internal dragon sort of being fought. But I think that it is a process in at least three distinct moments. And, and one is that tunnel going down. But I think that's only the start of the process, of the battle part. Obviously, everything up till now, everything, chapters 1 through 12, were a preparation for that. And then that happens. But I don't think the battle is over in merely that one moment. Uh, you know, sort of, that once fought, it's all done. Yeah. But rather, he, he, that, that's a still a struggle with the riddles, and he comes out not unscathed uh, from that. And then, as you said, he's able to give the Arkenstone away. I would say that 
in the act of giving his the Arkenstone away, he overcomes the final hurdle. Okay. Because even there, it's not without a bit of hesitancy, not without a, a glance of longing that he hands it over into the keeping of the Elf King and Bard yeah. later uh, as the bargaining chip to be the heart of Thorin. Thorin, of course, becomes succumbs entirely, as we, see, as we will see, um, just by mere contact with the treasure on which the dragon yeah. is laying. And Bilbo, though unaffected by it, because he did fight this battle in that tunnel last chapter, before even going down all the way, he's, like you said, galvanized against it. But I think the battle's not over for Bilbo until he actually hands over the Arkenstone and, and within the Hobbit, I think that's, that's really the final relinquishing, that like he's done with the battle at that point. But of course, Tolkien's not satisfied with that because we see in The Lord of the Rings that Bilbo still bears with him that struggle and he, he struggles to give away the ring yes. to Frodo. He struggles even when Frodo shows up some 20 some odd years late, 20, 25, 20, 20 something years later yeah. uh, in, in Rivendell where Bilbo has been composing, composing a poem that, that Aragorn later, that he later recites, you know, involving, you know, Yarendil was a mariner, Hutteri and Arvernian, you know, that kind of thing. And, and Frodo comes to him with the, and has the ring. And he says, Can, could I just see it? Just one last time, maybe, you know? And, and, and he's in the moment overshadowed, he turns into the, in the shadow realm, he turns into this craven figure reaching out for the ring. And Frodo sees this disturbing vision. So to say that, 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 that validates your point that he's Bilbo himself has been wounded by this encounter yeah. has, has still carries that, that struggle with him, even though he's overcome the battle earlier on. And, and it's really not until that scene in Rivendell when Bilbo finally masters that desire for treasure, the dragon. Find, yeah. Cause it's <laughs> there. He finally says, I understand now. I understand at last. And then, so it takes a long time. And for our story, really, you could say that it, 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 it finishes, Bilbo's transformation finishes, I would put, after he wakes up from being knocked on the head in the battle. See, mm -hmm. I would take it even further than where you took it. I, I would say that his, oh, yeah. his understanding or his transformation or his fight with the dragon doesn't really finish until he suffers physically in the midst of combat, strangely enough. Yeah. And yet, with Thorin, where Thorin points out, and I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, the Thorn points out to him that, that the world would be a better place if people like you uh, were, were more predominant, right? right? Which isn't just a, a nice compliment. I mean, Thorn's dying. He doesn't need to give a nice compliment. It's a recognition that Bilbo's yeah. really great, his greatness is really not in being a thief or being a soldier or whatever. It's in, it's in that yeah. desire for yeah. community. In, 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 exactly, valuing good cheer and, and uh, all those kinds uh, of things. Yeah, but no, I, th I think you're right. I'll, I'll concede that point. That when Bilbo dies, in that he's struck in the head in the battle, and he he yeah. rises again. Um, that's his sort of his final death and rebirth. Yeah, and it's from that that he learns to sing, as we see yeah. in the very last chapter, but not until the very last chapter. So we we have a story that that, that extends a lot longer than just the um, the, the the Hobbit, or even just this uh, defeating of Smaug here that occurs in thirteen and fourteen. Mm -hmm. I like how uh, Tolkien winds down the chapter because the whole chapter has been about going back into the treasure hoard and finding the Ark and Stone and then deciding what they're going to do and, and whether they're going to um, just leave or what they're going to do. 
And at the very end, they go out basically to uh, just to, to the front step to find whether smog is there or not. And it says, um, in the rock chamber, there would have been room for a hundred. There was a small chamber further in, more removed from the cold outside. It was quite deserted. Not even wild animals seemed to have used it in all the days of smog's dominion. There they laid their burdens, and some threw themselves down at once and slept, but the others sat near the outer door and discussed their plans. And all their talk, they came perpetually back to one thing. Where was smog? They looked west, and there was nothing. And east, there was nothing. And in the south, there was no sign of the dragon. But there was a gathering of very many birds. At that, they gazed and wondered, but they were no nearer understanding it when the first cold stars came out. And so you get an ending kind of like Dante at the end here with the stars. Yeah, yeah. Leaves you hanging to find out. Well, well, what happened to the dragon? You know, what, what what occurred to this creature? Which, uh, which I think is a good place to stop for us because you know we've, yeah. we've talked a lot about the dragon here, but we need to really find out next time. Well, what happened? What happened? What happened? Sounds sound like a good plan to you. Just to I think that's exactly right. Okay, good, 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 good. Well, thank you, sir. It's been again, it's been a very good conversation. I really appreciate it very much. Thank um, you, sir. It's very good. Um, and I look forward to our next meeting. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, tackle the, the next chapter in, in a week. And uh, God willing, the creep don't rise. So farewell, sir. Be fair to Aries to see you at journey's end. I mean, the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. All right. God bless, sir. Au revoir. <laughs>
silver and gold as fingers clay. Hammer and tongs and anvil stone. He worked his hands to the hard And coins he made and strings of rings. And fought to buy the power of kings. His eyes grew dim and his ears dull And his skin yellow on his old skull Through his bony claw a pale sheen His stony jewels slipped unseen No fear he heard or wait Dragon young is thirst snaked, and the stream smoked at his dark god. The flames hissed on the dank floor, and he died alone in the red fire. His bones were ashes in the heart. Was an old dragon under great storm. His red eyes blinked as he lay alone. His joy was dead and his youth spent. He was not the wrinkled and his limbs bent. In the long years to his gold shade, in his heart's furnace of fire. Bellies slime gem stuck thick. Silver and gold, he could stuff and lick. He knew the place of the least ring. Beneath the shadow of his black wing. Of these he thought on his heart bed. And dreamed that on their fleshy Crushed in their blood drank His ears drooped and his breath sank Mail rings rang, he heard them not A voice echoed in his deep rot A young warrior with a bright sword Called him forth to defend his honor Knives and corners hide, but iron tore him and his flame died.
Whitefield lay on knees of corn. His mouth savored neither meat nor drink. On his ears, song he could only think of his huge chest with carbon lid. Pale gems and gold lay hidden, the secret treasury in the ground. Strong doors were iron bound, swords and stains were tall with rust. His glory fallen and his rule unjust. Tom's hollow and his bow was cold. The king he was of elvish gold. He heard not the horns in the mountain pass. He smelt not the blood on the trodden grass. But his halls were burnt, his kingdom lost. In the cold pit his bones were tossed
That concludes another episode of Avalon Mentors Podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, would you kindly thumb the like button and also give the show a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on. Until next time, cast off the works of darkness, put upon you the armor of light. So long.